God, I just ask that in this moment, as we rightly reflect on how awesome you are, that I just pray that in this moment that there would be some that would receive that truth over um, the circumstances in their lives. Maybe a, a distinct struggle or a, a spot that someone's in where they just don't know the way forward. And Father, I pray that into that, I, I pray that there would be a receiving of the truth of who you are. That you're not just awesome in the sending of your son, you're not just awesome in laying salvation out and inviting us to it, but you're also awesome in the moment, you're awesome in the valley, you're awesome in the circumstance and the situation and the question mark that stands in front of our lives. And I just pray that in this moment that as we continue with the service, as we turn our attention to God's word, I, I, I pray that there would be a sense of us looking to and waiting and believing how awesome you are right in the midst of our very lives. And in that, I would find that there would be a faith that would grow and deepen in this. And so God, show yourself awesome again and again to us and let us take hold of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, you can grab a seat and uh, you have got to this morning uh, get your hand on a copy of God's word because uh, we are in Acts chapter 10 and uh, this uh, series that we're moving through the entire book of Acts, and um, and now we're into our, our kind of our next sub series, and the title of the sub series is on the screen: missional, a gospel on the move, and whether you're in our church sitting with us this morning or joining us online and a part of our church in that way, um, in these messages in this series, um, God is going to make it clear to us that there is a mission that He is wanting to press forward and both individually and collectively together as the church of Jesus Christ. We're wanting to be on mission in every way. And uh, the mission of Christ, the mission of the church is the same mission that we have put in front of our church. It's to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We're wanting to be a people in a church that is faithful to that Great Commission. And, and that is what God is always wanting to kind of grow and expand and extend uh, into the lives of his people, and it's what we're really going to see in this sub-series. And the, the question that's going to be in front of us again and again is, how do I engage in this mission? I, not, not someone else, me, in my life, in the way that God's designed me and gifted me, how am I to engage in this mission? This is our primary purpose as we wait for eternity. That's the purpose of our life, and uh, and that's the and, and so what we're going to see in this first message is uh, the way that God has extended this uh, mission to the whole world. And so as, as sort of as a backdrop to that, um, what we're going to see is we're going to see access extended. And I don't know if you guys know much about U.S. history, but if you uh, stayed awake during your U.S. history class, you know that there were some periods in our history when some monumental moves were made to extend voting access to more people. Uh, 1870, the 15th Amendment was passed that says that all races have the right to vote. 1920, the 19th Amendment, women's right to vote was granted. And suddenly, in a moment, access is extended to, to a right that people didn't have previously. In a moment. And in redemptive history, 
And then specifically in the New Testament, there is a moment when access to the gospel, way more significant than the right to vote, access to the gospel, access to the invitation to be invited to be part of the kingdom of God was extended beyond the established group, extended to more people than ever before. And those of us who have put our faith in Christ um, are a part of this invitation because of the extension of it. And the extension of the gospel is recorded in Acts chapter 10. That's what we have in front of us this morning. So let's check this out together. We're gonna study the entire chapter this morning and you might be like, wow, based on the previous pace through the book of Acts, we were gonna finish our study in the book of Acts in like 2024, right? Some of you were thinking that, that was the pace we were on. We're gonna advance a little quicker and we're gonna hit a whole chapter today and sort of grab hold of this and then apply it to our lives. And the the, the big idea we're gonna see is this. God extends the gospel to the entire world. Extends the gospel to the entire world. So let's, let's, let's study this chapter together and then we're gonna bring some implications to our lives. Here we go. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Italian cohort was a, um, a subset of their military, okay? That was not like a mafia reference, okay? Any of you that jump into like Italian cohort and centurion. A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms, as he gave to the poor generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So first, I, I want you to or- understand where we're at right now. We're in Caesarea. And Caesarea here on the map, as you can see, is um, a city in the region of Samaria, And look how far away it is from Jerusalem. Now I want you to remember that back in Acts chapter one, the declaration was is that the gospel is gonna go out uh, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, north and south, and then to the ends of the earth. And this is the moment we're in right now. And then we got this Cornelius guy, he's a centurion, which means he was a commander of 100 men in the military, but he was a Gentile. He wasn't Jewish, but he had a devotion to God. He was devout. He feared God, and he led his household in what would have been the patterns of of the Jewish faith. But because he was a Gentile, he was restricted access, uh, full access. Uh, He couldn't have that in God's community. But God had a plan that we're gonna see unpacked now to use Cornelius in a monumental moment in redemptive history. So here you've got Cornelius, he's devout, he's praying, would have been praying along with some of the Jewish traditions, and then verse three. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. Now if you know the Gospels and Acts, you know that when an angel jumps on the scene, something significant is about to happen. Something is about to be announced. And he says, Cornelius, and this man who was a military leader, look at his response, and he stared at him in terror. He's like, "Uh uh-oh. He's not sure what's coming. And he said, what is it, Lord? Certain a mixture of nervousness and apprehension. And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Just imagine hearing that from an angel. Like, God's And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants, so devout that his response was immediate. And a devout soldier from among those who attended him and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. 
Now the scene changes. Now we're with, we're with Peter This says his testimony unfolds. Look at verse 9. The next day as they were on their journey, just notice the, the, the sovereignty of God in this moment, just coordinating all of these things perfectly. So he has this dream. He sends his people. The next day they're approaching the city, and now look what happens. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. That He didn't fall into a trance because they were taking too long, okay? He didn't fall into a trance because he was just like overwhelmed with anger that he couldn't get his food fast enough, okay? He was falling into a trance here because God was communicating to him, and God can interrupt anything at any point to speak to us. He fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. He was faithful to Levitical law, that in the Old Testament law, there were certain things you could eat and certain things you couldn't. And, and those distinctions established the holiness of God's people. It was a way of saying, I'm a part of God's people. I don't eat what you might eat that aren't Jewish. And so He's living under that law, and then verse 15, and the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. There's something changing in this moment. There, there's a shift that God's doing in Peter, and this happened three times, because apparently that's how many times it took before Peter finally got the lesson. Peter's kind of known for needing a little more time than others. That's why I just love Peter. And, uh, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So what's happening here is that God is beginning to redefine what was previously the law that they were called to be obedient to. What God is saying is, I always have the right as God to declare what is clean and not clean, and I can redefine the boundaries of access at any point. So he's like, don't, don't, call, don't call common, uh, don't, don't call common what, 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 I've, what I've shifted or changed. What God has made clean, do not call common. Three times he emphasizes the point. And what's beginning to unfold, we're going to see more clearly here in a little bit, is that the unclean parts of the law were temporary. They were for the purpose of showing the distinctness and the holiness of God's people, like I said. But now, what we know about already is that is shifting. Now, the distinctness and holiness is about allegiance to Jesus Christ by faith. That in his new covenant, he's redefined some things. That in Christ, all people receive the forgiveness of sins and are transformed through the power of God's Spirit. So then look what happens in verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. So he's confused about it, but he knows that he's had it. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, again leading Peter, notice his attentiveness to God, such an encouragement to us. Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one who you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, 
was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And so now there's this, there's this work of God where you have Cornelius and then Peter and, and the people come and they sort of all come together and there's like, some, God's doing something. God's doing something. The Spirit has to remind Peter, and it's, again, the truth of what's happening here is beginning to unfold for Peter because the Spirit, notice what it says there, it said, without hesitation. Go without hesitation. Why would there have been hesitation? Because the Levitical law outlined that, that Jews couldn't, couldn't be in that same household as Gentiles or else they would be unclean. So, so the Spirit is communicating to Peter, all of that's changing, it's shifting. It's shifting. There's, there's something that God's doing here that's going to be clear. And so Peter, faithful to God, is following. Verse 24, and on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So he's like, party, Peter's coming. And he's got such influence that everyone gathers together in his home, likely in a courtyard in his house. Verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. There's a whole sermon I could preach there on don't worship the people who communicate the gospel, uh, worship Jesus Christ. And Peter has such a sense of like, I'm just a man. Like, get off your knees. You kneel before one person. That's God alone. And so there's this, this awesome moment with uh, Peter and Cornelius. But Cornelius just has this like, almost this jubilant sort of respect for Peter that also is sweet. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves, watch, the, watch what he's acknowledging here. This is the tension that's changing. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection, without hesitation. I ask then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. Behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so Cornelius he has such a sense that this is a big moment and he, he senses the very presence of God and the heaviness of what God was wanting to communicate in this moment. And he says, he says, bring it. What do you know that we need to know? Peter steps into these moments. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality but in every, na every nation, every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. 
But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There's just this moment. The message has been communicated. And then 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. They heard the truth of the gospel. They received it, and the Spirit fell. They were filled with the Spirit. And the believers from among the circumcised, so these were Jewish who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. It's being extended to the world. Verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues, the other languages of the area, and extolling God. They're worshiping God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And in that moment, what he's saying is these Gentiles who before I couldn't even walk into their house without it being unclean, now they have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And why would I not invite them, even command them to be baptized so that they could declare we're all together now under the name of Jesus? It's an awesome moment of unity. Verse 48, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He's like, you're with us, declare it. Then they asked him to remain for some days, likely to unpack. What in the heck just happened? And that's what happens sometimes, right? Like God moves and then you're like, I still got to kind of figure this out a bit. And, and, and things are changing here, but, but Peter declares God shows no partiality. And then he says, if, if you want to move in a way to be acceptable to God, you need to have a fear of God and want to do what is right. And then he walks right into the gospel because the gospel informs what is right. These gospel, the gospel centrality here that Peter lays out is to highlight the key aspects of the gospel that we must hold in the same way. There's a sense of God's presence there. Seeing a move of God on the people that these people that were God-fearing now had salvation because they had been led to Jesus Christ, the one who forgives sin. And every nation now has access to the gospel. This is still not just going to be unpacked in these people. It's going to be unpacked in the church. We're going to see it next week. I want you to see that, that God clearly moves first to coordinate the preaching of the gospel over a person's life. He prepares their heart to receive it. When you receive the gospel through faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. And in this moment, there is a demonstrative work of God's Spirit because he needed to declare and make sure everyone knew that this was real but that's not necessarily normative in the same way of speaking in tongues. You can't make a normative argument about tongues from this passage, not at all. But certainly after coming to faith in Christ, being filled with the Spirit, there's a move to be baptized, and, and that's the common pattern. It's, 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 it's God works, repentance, a faith in Christ and repentance kind of all together, filling of the Spirit and baptism in water. And the big idea, though, of this entire chapter is that God extends the gospel to the entire world. And I want us in this uh, remaining moments together just to consider looking at this passage, what are the implications for 
my life and for your life. How should this inform the way that we live and the way that we think? Well, the first thing I want to point out is this. We need to establish unity around gospel essentials. We need to establish unity around gospel essentials. There's so many different issues that the Bible uh, uh, brings attention to, and there's, there's so many different beliefs about all of the issues of, that are brought up by God's word, but there are places like here, anywhere you hear the gospel preached throughout the Bible, and then um, especially in 1 Corinthians 15, there's this place where Paul goes, um, hey, I'm gonna share with you some things, but some of these things are of first importance. And then if you compare 1 Corinthians 15 and what Paul says is of first importance and you look here in what Peter communicates and you look earlier in some of the other sermons we've heard from Peter or from others, later on in Paul, you're gonna see again and again, Paul returns back to, hey, above all else, we find our unity around the cross of Jesus Christ. And you see it all throughout the New Testament. And we want to be a church that establishes unity around gospel essentials. Here's a few things just from this passage that you, could, that you could draw on that are gospel essentials. One, we believe in a Trinitarian God. God is um, three persons, one God, very distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All of them have a part to play in our, in our engagement with God. They have distinct roles and purposes and ways that plays out in redemptive history. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it's both a mystery and something that the Bible speaks clearly to. Then there's gospel distinctives. I mean, let's just highlight some of the ones we just read about. Peace uh, that you find in your life is found through Jesus Christ alone, that he's Lord of all. That's central to the gospel is that Jesus died, that he rose again on the third day, and then he appeared again to evidence to these initial witnesses that he was truly alive. We, we learn from this passage that it's a gospel distinctive that he's coming to bring judgment. So we need to make sure that we um, accept the gospel and turn to Christ, that eternity holds in the, is held in the balance by our decision about what we do with Jesus Christ. That the way that you assure yourself of salvation is by believing in Christ and by receiving the forgiveness of sins so that you're right before God through his righteousness. Then salvation comes, and after salvation, in salvation you're filled and empowered by God's Spirit for a purpose that we're gonna talk about in a little bit. That's followed by baptism, and then you live a life committed to doing what is right, faithful to God's heart and God's word. These are gospel distinctives. They're all mixed throughout the gospel. They're essential, and we unify on those things. Then church on a mission is an essential part of the gospel. You see it here. Peter refers to himself as a witness. He talks about preaching and testifying. That, that, that we've been given this gospel and through the communication of the gospel, people can come to faith, so the church needs to be about communicating the gospel to the entire world until Jesus returns. But the unifying center, the place where you step into it, is a fear of God and a commitment to doing what is right. That's the starting point because fear of God and a desire to do, what, do what's right with your life is a humility move. It's saying, I am not in charge. That is the first move to the gospel. That's a gospel essential. That, that I don't make the decisions of what I should do with my life. Another person does, and his name is Jesus. And what is right is in line with God's heart and God's word. That's the qualification for unity. 
there are hundreds and thousands of things. Trust me, in, in, in my years of ministry, um, there are so many things that people, even myself included, can have strong convictions about. Lots of issues, lots of issues. And in this, these past days, I have seen so many issues get raised up to a place of urgency that I don't think is pleasing to God. Just these issues all the time, so riled up about things. And let me just tell you that if you want to be a part of a Christian community or a church where every issue is perfectly and neatly categorized and defined, where, where unity on every conviction is required, even demanded, if you want to be viewed as mature, if you want a, a Christian community where you just surround yourself with only people who believe like you on every single issue, then here's what I promise will happen. Uh, your group will grow smaller and smaller and you'll say very, very problematic things like we are the only ones who see it right. And then you'll find that your group is small and you'll be like, this is the only place where I can find unity, right here, me and my two friends who believe, we believe everything alike. And you'll call it unity, but I'm afraid it's not. Because what will happen is to get there, you'll have to eliminate all sense of mystery. Instead of walking in humility on certain issues, you'll have a prideful confidence about those issues, that you've got it all figured out. And you'll declare that you have that perfectly figured out. And then what'll happen, watch this, is you'll codify it into a law that's no different than the Old Testament law. Now, I've just created my, my Christian law, and if you don't measure up to all of those laws, it's interesting how quickly we can become just like the Pharisees. We want to fight for unity only in the right areas. And in our church, based on our study of Scripture and the application of this to the church, we're going to focus on the majors. And we are going to be confident, but yet strive to be winsome and loving in our communication of it, and we're gonna give space for lots of difference on the minors. If you're looking for a church that's trying to define every conviction on every issue and then call everyone to agree across the board at every level, we are not convicted that scripture demands that. We're instead going to strive to be humble and generous and gracious with differences. I want to be a leader who's comfortable saying that I don't have it all figured out and that some things are still in process and I believe God could lead and define and some of those things I just trust to him. We're not going to determine unity around anything but the majors, the things of first importance. We will declare confidently where we believe that eternity is at stake. Where eternity is at stake. We're going to spend ourselves and our energy on those areas we're gonna appeal where wisdom seems clear, and we're gonna consider with humility on, on all other issues that people might be wrestling with. If you wanna know more, and you're like, man, what does our church believe on some of these things? On our website, we have all of that laid out. In our covenant membership, which is when people wanna become a member of our church, we have some really things laid out that we believe are the central, essential majors and into both our church and into the bigger Christian world. We wanna be generous and gracious. We wanna lean in to listen to other people. But one of the most important essentials where eternity is at stake is a fear of God and a commitment to do what's right in line with what the gospel teaches.
And ultimately, when you strip it all away, what we're going after is the things that are central to Jesus Christ alone. It's Christ at the center, Christ in everything. It's, it's to make Christ famous. That's what we're compelled by. And we wanna give our lives and our best energy to that. And we wanna establish unity around gospel essentials. So important in the life of our church. That's the first thing that I believe really helps release the gospel, extend the gospel to the entire world. The second one is this. We have to extinguish partiality. We have to extinguish it in our lives and in our hearts. God had to put Peter into a trance to overcome the prejudice that was in his heart regarding Gentiles. It was partiality. God was overcoming a racial prejudice that was outlawed, outlined in the Old Testament law. He knew he was making a shift from what he had told his people to do. And so he needed to put Peter in a trance and reinforce it three times to make sure that Peter understood that those unclean distinctions were only temporary. And God's not just addressing the partiality with Jews and Gentiles, he's addressing all partiality. If you want evidence of that, just you, could, you can turn later to James chapter two, where um, it's very clear that it's outlined and communicated to God's people, show no partiality. So think about it, all the distinctions and how, how often they enter our mind all distinctions have the potential to become partiality. Racial distinctions, socioeconomic distinctions, gender distinctions, background distinctions, um, age distinctions, uh, education distinctions, the list could go on and on. God shows no partiality, Peter's proclaiming here. All distinctions have the potential to be a form of partiality. And here's the problem, because here's what partiality does. Partiality restricts the extension of the gospel. That's what it does. When I have partiality, I, I put something between me and the extension of the gospel, and now there's a way that my relationship changes with that person because of the distinction I establish. And when that partiality is restricting or restraining the extension of the gospel, it's a problem, it's sin. Because it stands in the way of what God wants. It, 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 it literally separates. Partiality has to be overcome for God's desire to come to pass. I was studying the subject partiality um, last summer as I watched as, as sort of the, the, the racial tension was exploding around our country and still is in so many different ways. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, how do I understand the subject of racism theologically and biblically? And I, as I processed through it, I realized that a racism, viewing someone as less than or derogatorily because of the color of their skin is an aspect of partiality. It's an outcome of partiality when it sets itself in my heart. And last summer, I, I wrote a blog post that some of you might have read um, about the sin of partiality and, and applying it to the subject of racism. And as always sort of happens in this sort of heightened, everyone freaks out and is so easily triggered culture, is I got some negative feedback about that. Um, of course, because this is the environment in our culture, now accusation came before questions. They could have asked a really easy question, like, what did you mean by that? But instead it came as an accusation, which is, can we just, can we just agree that's not the healthiest way to address anything ever with anyone? 
and they came and they're like, you're saying that everybody's racist. I was like, well, let me, let me reread the article that I wrote. Nope. And if you thought I believed that, you could have asked me and I would have said, no, I don't believe that. But what I was saying is I was saying that partiality is real and God's word clearly talks about it. And so the person who's walking humbly with their God, the person who has a real fear of God and wants to do what's right, when they read God's word and there's a sin, there's something that God says, don't do it. We don't respond to the culture and go, you're saying I'm that, I'm not. That's not what people who fear God do. What people who fear God and want to do what right do is they look, they go to God's word and they go, man, that, that could be in my heart. I could be deceived about that and it could be in my heart. And I don't want any partiality in my heart. And what I was calling us to is to recognize that I've never heard people in, in the midst of the culture of the church ever confess a sin of partiality. Why is that? We have to ask that question. Because people who fear God and want to do what's right are gonna see that and go, man, there could be some aspects of partiality in my heart on a number of different distinctions, racially and otherwise. And we have to ask the question whether there's ways that we've viewed things. We have to stop long enough to listen to the other side and consider, am I hearing rightly or am I just in a posture of defensiveness? That's, what, that's the characteristic of a people who fear God. They also walk in humility and love towards other people. Am I understanding your pain rightly? Am I seeing that clearly? Am I considering that in my own heart? Am I calling that out when I see it in other people in my community? Everyone should evaluate their heart on this sin like every other sin, and here's why. Because in our mission to reach the the world with the gospel, we have to extinguish any and all partiality because it ultimately restrains love. That's what it does. All of these places where we make distinctions and, and show partiality, and have it in our heart, it keeps the love of the gospel from being extended to all people. So we have to extinguish all partiality. It's right here for us now, in God's word, in our church. And we have to consider this, and we have to, and in places where we see partiality, we need to literally repent. God, please change my heart on that. I've hesitated to, to, to go after, to, to, to pursue, to open the door, to have the conversation with that person or that person or that person. I've, I've, I've held, literally held back my love from that person because I've believed something and I have a distinction. And, and, and as opposed to, when we understand this rightly, then what we do is we look and we see amongst all people a unifying reality that we're all created in the image of God. And now we enter into, led by God's spirit, looking at every opportunity equally because we know that the gospel can transform any human heart. All are invited. And so we extinguish impartiality so that the gospel can be fully extended. Even though God opens the door, we can close it by our partiality. So let the door swing open and let it swing wide because the church of Jesus Christ are people who are going to extinguish partiality so that we can fully get to number three, which is engage in the mission. Engage in the mission. Watch this, I love how it kind of all comes together. 
here at the end, as you see the mission go out and Peter faithful to that and Cornelius, his whole entire household, and then likely, as you see later, as we're gonna see even later, like, like through this household, and now you've got this household and, and Philip and his household, and you start to see the gospel spread to Caesarea and eventually to the ends of the earth. But how it happens is this, there's unity around gospel essentials, there's a move to crucify partiality, put it to death, out of the death of partiality, love is resurrected, and the gospel essentials are then extended to every person to the ends of the earth. And that is the mission, church. That's what you and I are called to engage in. All of us. All of our life, all of our relationships, all of our church, all of our ministries, all of it, exists to serve the mission. That's where we align. That's where we find our unity. Listen, we're, we're still figuring this out as a church. I'm so thankful for the way God in his sovereignty has led our church right into the book of Acts as we've kind of moved from our first five years to thinking about the next five and our, I, I believe this is starting to happen in our people, in our leadership, it's certainly happening. And we're learning in this, but what we're learning is this, uh, our life, my life, your life, that's not the end. That's not the end. It's here for a moment and then gone. That can't be the end goal. Our relationships are not the end because those are only temporary for this life. Those relationships are here for the promotion of the gospel. Christ's church, this church is not the end. The, the, the individual ministry that you care about and love, that's not the end. The mission of all of those things, the end is the mission. It's to extend the gospel to the entire world through whatever means necessary. Through the preaching of the gospel on Sunday morning, through the preaching of the gospel in children's ministry and student ministries, through gathering young adults so we can get compelled around the mission, to small groups meetings so that we could be both changed and so that we could go out with the mission. Every aspect of compassion ministry is not just to meet needs but to also look for an opportunity to share the gospel. All men's and women's ministry exist for the purpose of calling people to this mission, to make Christ famous. In the last five years of our church, we've, we've strived in every way to build a strong foundation focused on gospel basics. As we look forward to the next five years, both I sense and hear from our people, I sense and hear from the Lord, from our leaders, and I can affirm through this series in the book of Acts, that there is a clear message rising up for this next season in our church, and it's this. Reach out. Emphasis on out. Reach out. Engage in the mission. We're, we're not, our goal is not just to do a few nice things as a church and be like, oh, we're killing it. Good job. Good job. I, I, it's to fully engage in the mission. Every single person in our church, aligned around growing as disciples and then going to make disciples. It's growing and going, it's growing and going all the time, right together. Those are missional moves that God wants us to make. Christ didn't call you to follow him so that you could watch the mission. He wants you to engage in the mission. 
He didn't give you his spirit so that you could watch. He gave you the spirit to equip and empower you so that you could participate. He didn't give you, do all that he did in dying on the cross, rising from the dead, uh, letting this mission play out, extending it to the world, working it sovereignly through all the generations of the church in the midst of lots of resistance to get it into your life so that you could like, um, ask for the ottoman for your feet to sit on and ask for your favorite drink and some popcorn and just kick back and watch. But some of us, I, I think, unfortunately, have that posture. And you can't study the book of Acts and not feel a bit uncomfortable if that's where you sit. And, and, and into that, God, in the power of his spirit, has equipped and empowered you to make a missional move. And each week, we just want to highlight that. Make a missional move. So this week, in light of what we've studied, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just begin to think about the people in and around your orbit, in and around your life. Maybe it's a, a friend at school. Maybe it's a, a coworker, a family member, or I'm an old friend. Think about the places in those friendships and relationships where you're tempted with partiality. Maybe it's partiality because the person just seems too far gone. Too, too bitter and opposed to God to be reached. Maybe it's too different than you. Maybe it's because they're, they're at a different age or generation and you don't feel like you could speak into their life. Maybe they're so far broken by their sin, you're like, I don't know if there's any way. And the message today would, would call you to ask God to begin to give you a sincere love for them that you would look past all those outward distinctions and that you would look right to their heart and go, maybe God could use me. Because they're created in the image of God and regardless of the distinctions that might cause me to view them differently or feel uncomfortable, I'm gonna humbly look for an opportunity to engage and make a missional move towards them. Maybe you could just say, hey, I'd love to just share what Jesus Christ has done in my life. What's the worst thing they could do? Say no to you? but then know that you know that gospel. So another day, maybe a few months or years down the road, they might be like, I remember that person inviting me and might go to you because of the confidence in which you had and the peace that, which you, that you expressed about the gospel and about what Jesus had done in your life. Maybe it's to make a move to look for an opportunity just to, just to bless somebody, to show them the love of Christ and say, hey, I'd love to take you out to lunch and and maybe ask a question that might feel a little more natural, like how can I pray for you? And then pray for them and show them the confidence of Jesus Christ or invite them to church. Whatever it is, make a missional move towards somebody that you wouldn't normally think about. It could be somebody you randomly engage in and around a store or it's another place that you go often. When you're engaged in the mission though, you're thinking about those things all the time and you're heart and mind are torn, turned towards them and you're listening for God to lead you. And that could start right now. Just like this moment in the book of Acts, this could be a powerful moment that could lead to somebody being so emboldened by God and his spirit that they would make a move even today to do that. And into that moment, God could use your words of defining and describing the gospel 
to literally lead somebody to that decision. This is a powerful moment for us to consider that we're not watching the mission, we're engaging in it. We gotta make a missional move. Start in prayer, share it with others. Let's hold each other accountable for engaging in the mission because that is our purpose. God extends the gospel to the entire world, establish unity around gospel essentials, extinguish partiality, engage in the mission. Let's pray together. God, I, I ask you to do what only you can do. If you can send an angel to a Gentile in Caesarea, if you can put Peter into a trance and speak to him through your spirit, if you can bring your spirit down on an entire household of Gentiles to extend your mission, you certainly can speak to us in this moment. I pray that for some that are ready and prepared by faith to engage in this mission, that I pray for some that you would lay a person on their heart right now. If there's hesitation, God, because of partiality, help us through repentance and through the work of your Spirit to extinguish that right now. All of the doubts, all of the hurdles that we might put around that, I pray, God, you would bring those down. I pray, God, for the person who might be sitting here right now who might be like, I want to walk in that gospel but I don't feel like I'm worthy. I pray that they would see that God shows no partiality, that he loves you right where you're at, that he died so that he could forgive all of the things that might keep you from coming to Jesus Christ and to find life and life eternal. And I pray that your heart would be turned towards the gospel, that you might receive God's spirit and be empowered to engage in the mission like so many of us this morning. God, I pray that you'd bring a great sense of the potential for revival, that we wouldn't just be faithful in this, but we'd be encouraging other people to be faithful in this, and that we would see all of the end goal of our relationships in our life to be to stir and to fan and to flame this mission. And God, so that you might do the thing that you want to do through us, that we might extend the gospel to the world through our church it, today, 2021. We ask for that, God. Do it for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.